Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Chef Mac. Uh, now, Chef, do you go by McClowski or is it Chef Mac? What would you prefer? I mean, my brand is Chef Mac. Uh, my This book I publish is Chef Mac. When I work in restaurant, I go by, uh, you know, Noodle guy, or uh, whatever the old ladies want to call me. Whatever the old ladies want to call you. I feel you. You know, after a certain age, they can say whatever they want. All my girlfriends in the restaurant are like 85 years old, and they're in the back making dumplings. They just kind of like grab my butt and tell me, uh, you know, more cabbage, more carrots. Go get it, white boy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Chef Mac, you and I have have a history. We go way back. I uh, used to uh, work at Headblade, and you had such a, a vibrancy and a buoyant energy at that time. You were, uh, you were just an all-around great guy. But, you know, it's that thing of we don't know what people are going through. And I recently posted on my Facebook that um, I was going to be talking about divorce on my podcast. Right. And- you shared, you posted on my Facebook that, hey, man, I went through a, you know, I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but basically, like, I went through, or you go, my dog Portis, you said, my dog Portis helped me get through the divorce. I was thinking yeah. about jumping out of my window when I found out my wife was cheating. My dog yeah. saved my life and kept me grounded, literally. I'd be happy to talk about it. Talk yeah, to us man. about that, Mac. Okay, so uh, I got married when I was 30 years old. And uh, we were happily married, I would say, for like, you know, about five years or so Um, when the relationship kind of skidded and uh, she had kind of and she had moved out already and was vocal about, you know, I got a new boyfriend. You know, life isn't what you think it is. Um, It was a very sad, depressing time. I think like the whole topic, I think a lot of men and women can relate to like this being a very difficult relationship ender on a marriage level. You know, it's like a little bit different than like just having a girlfriend or a boyfriend. So it was like something that I think a lot of men take really personally when it comes to like major relationship failure. Um, So whoever's fault it was, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm just saying like when it happened to me, it was an extremely depressing time. Um, I was, I I saw your post and I was like, wow, this actually speaks to me pretty closely because I was like suicidal and, um, honestly thinking about jumping out the window on Christmas to, uh, you know, forget that the whole thing had ever happened. And, uh, what you wrote about made sense to me because you, I think you were interested in talking to people who had coped with major relationship loss, not based around alcohol, drugs, food addiction or whatever the thing, the coping coping mechanisms that most people probably would use to deal with like relationship loss. And when I was standing on a chair, like ready to jump out the window, I looked over and my dog was sitting there like looking at me like, Hey, if you jump out that window, I need to get fed still. (laughs) And I was like, Oh, I have like a responsibility to, take care of something besides myself so like i can't do this i have to like i have to you know care for this animal that was like actually a product of my marriage um 
when my ex-wife wanted to have a child and I decided we should try with a puppy first. And so the dog that we brought in to kind of fill that child void thing uh, sort of saved my life and gave me a purpose to to stick with it and um, not jump out the window. So take me back, Mac, to what were the thoughts of there's so many reasons why a person would want to end their life when they find out that their wife is with someone else. Sometimes uh, they, you know, take it personally, like maybe I'm not enough as an individual or my world is collapsing or I'm going to lose everything, the house, the, the money, the like what was so painful about that experience for you? I think initially it was just like the uh, fear of failing at something that was really important. And I think like the commitment to get married was a big deal for me. And, you know, you stand there and you say in front of somebody that you're willing to uh, do life and limb for some other person and compromise and do all, you know, like uh, do all these things that you think like a, like a lifelong relationship would need. And so when that fell apart, I felt like a failure. Like, I mean, I felt like I had done something wrong. Like it was my fault. Like, um, I had failed in like a major way, not just like I had a job that I wasn't good at, or I had a girlfriend that didn't work out, but it was like, you know, a commitment level that was a lot higher to me. And when it didn't work out, I felt like completely demoralized and, uh, insufficient, maybe like in a lot of ways, because I didn't make it work at that level. You talked about guilt, right? Like I did something wrong. Like I did something bad. I failed. Um, what else was under there? You talked about the, you know, feeling demoralized. And, and so if you failed, then what? What, what do you think was going to happen as a result of your failure? I honestly thought like I will never have a healthy relationship again after this because if I couldn't handle this at the marriage level, then I'm not, it's not going to be worth it for me to try to date. I'll be single forever. I'll always be alone. Like those kind of feelings were kind of like what I was experiencing at that time. Like when, you know, the, it was all fresh and like, uh, you know, it's, it's a long process. The divorce thing was like 16 months for me. So it was kind of a, a long time to think about what I had thought I had done wrong. What was my responsibility? Maybe what wasn't my responsibility, what she may have done wrong or whatever it was. But like, the initial was just kind of devastating. Just like thinking that I had wrecked something that should have been like the highest regard relationship of my life as an adult, you know? Right. Cause you felt like you committed, you sacrificed, you did all the things that you felt like uh, you were supposed to do to make a marriage work. And then it still failed. And then you felt like, well, I must've done something wrong here. Maybe something I missed. And then the thought goes to, I'll never find somebody else again, which speaks to a fear of uh, that you'd end up alone. Right. Yeah. I mean, I honestly thought at that time I was 35 when I got divorced and I honestly thought I'll just be alone forever now. You know, this is what it is. And so with that feeling of being alone, what was scary about that for you of being alone forever? Uh, I mean, I don't think. I don't know. At, at this point in my life, like being alone is different than what it was then. But I, I think like after you 
have gone through a marriage or you're, you've, you've been involved in a marriage, like you, you don't go into a marriage thinking this might not work out long-term. You know, you go into it thinking like, this is it, like, this is my woman or man, and this is what it's going to be for the rest of my life. And so when all of a sudden that, that doesn't end up how being how it works out, I think like it's probably like a common reaction to think like, oh my gosh, if I could, if this couldn't work out, what's going to work out? Like, what do I do? Do I start over and try to find another lifelong partner? Is that even like a concept that makes sense to me at this point? Um, should I just be alone? Is that what makes more sense? Did I do something wrong? Am I inept? Whatever it is. Yeah. There's a lot of things going through your head in that period of time. Usually like I would say in the first like year or so after a separation or a divorce or, you know, the end of any long-term, like meaningful, committed relationship. Um, I don't know. I think like it's a common, it's a common feeling and it's a good topic too. I mean, like I thought I was like alone and nobody understood. And I was just like, I did something. I was like imperfect in the ways that I thought that I was solid, you know? You know, I you, I want to highlight something you just mentioned there. You said, um, I felt like I was alone and no one else understood. And and so when we talk about, like, what was that fear for you of being alone? It was that, wow, there's going to be no one else to understand me. Uh, what is it about that fear of not being understood that's so scary for you? Well, when you, when you make, like, a, to me, like, marriage was a huge commitment thing and i'm not like a commitment phobic person but um when you make that commitment to somebody and at whatever fault it is it doesn't work out i think like you start feeling like maybe you have inadequacies or um you're not a solid like life partner or there are issues you need to work on on yourself to like be at that level so yeah, I just felt like, um, you know, like unsure of who I was even, Talk you know, when I thought I was, I thought I was pretty certain on who I was at that point in my life, but I just felt like, oh my gosh, what is happening? Like, what did I do wrong? Why, where do I need to improve? How did I screw up? Right. That, that certainty of who we were. And now this is, um, like, uh, you kind of feel forced to like reevaluate. And, yeah. and see like, oh, maybe, maybe I'm broken. Like you talked about feeling inept, feeling inadequate, uh, feeling demoralized and like, you'll be alone forever. So we see a lot of, uh, uh, black and white thinking in there, right? Like you're 35 and, um, but thinking that you'll never find somebody else, uh, ever throughout the course of your life. Mac, I hear you using the word commitment a lot. Um, what, what, uh, what about that word commitment is so resonant for you? Is that something, is that a message that came from your mom, your dad? Did you, did you hear that message growing up? I mean, I think like, um, I I've been in a lot of like long-term relationships and I would say I was like committed to all of them. I've never like strayed or like wanted to cheat or I was like distracted when I was in relate long-term relationships. And I think, I just think like the marriage part of it is a deeper commitment, not just because like, you know, the government's involved, but um, it's a, 
it was just a big deal. You know, like I never wanted to get married. Um, I never wanted to have children. I met a woman who was a lot younger than me and we were friends for a while and she was from another country and she moved to visit some family in Cali and we were happened to both be single at that time. So we started dating and like, it was awesome, you know, like most new things are. And at that point she was either going to have to leave or to go back because her visa was like expiring or um, I could take a chance and we could make that commitment and get married and just kind of like see how, how it worked. And so I was like, you know what? I'm 30. My life's pretty straight. I have a good job. I got my stuff together. I have a home, you know, I'll make, I'm, I'm willing to try that commitment level to see if it will help this relationship to sustain itself. And so then we got, we, we got married at the Headblade warehouse, uh, like two weeks later. And, um, you know, that's where the whole thing started from. And Todd was like my, <laughs> he was my guy there, but, uh, maybe that's not the common story of how people get hitched, but that was, that was how it worked for us. And like, to me, the, the commitment level was a little bit higher than, uh, just like a normal relationship where like, I would still be committed, but I wouldn't have that fear of failure as much because it's kind of a lesser deal. You know, if you're not married. So, but to go back to that word commitment, what, because I, I, cause I hear a, a, two things here that you, when you talked about getting married to her, you said, let's see if this works out. So even in the marriage, there wasn't certainty, right? Like we, we I think sometimes we kind of forget of the mind state that we had going into a thing. And w- when we're able to remember how we were viewing it at the time, it allows us to have more compassion for if it doesn't work out. So right. because, uh, and I want to highlight that because there are a lot of listeners out there who are getting divorced and they've forgotten why they got married or, or what nudged them in that direction. And for you, it was like, hey, let's see if this works out. Let's see how this commitment thing goes. So that to me speaks of like an experimentation that it might or might not work out. Yeah. And you're not wrong. I mean, I think all relationships are kind of an experimentation. Um, and you, I, I would guess generally people probably put a little bit more uh, like classroom time into figuring out if that's the person they want to marry or not. I didn't have that luxury because it was sort of a quick turnaround marriage. Um, but like, I, I don't think it's that dissimilar. I mean, I think like getting married um, for a lot of people has different meaning. And um, certainly like the way that I thought about it possibly working out was different than whatever she thought was, was possible of working out. Um, but like, in like retrospect, it was also like probably the best five, six years of my life when we were married, it was like a growing up thing. And I think for both of us and, um, although it wasn't exactly like the cleanest way to end a marriage, it wasn't so bad. And, uh, not like in the big picture, neither of us jumped out the window. So, I mean, it was, <laughs> we survived it at least. And, and, and we actually like communicate like adults and everything still. So, um, I don't know, man. I mean, I think like the commitment 
in my mind at marriage level just was a lot more meaningful for me, even though maybe I wasn't taking the relationship as seriously as I may have even taken a relationship as seriously with somebody else that I was more like uh, involved with, like at a longer term at that time, you know, like in, in the dating process, like I've had plenty of girlfriends, but um, that was like, uh, you know, kind of a quick trigger decision for the marriage. Take me to the moment when you found out that she cheated. What, where, okay, was, so, that, was that the moment where you were also feeling inadequate in it in that, or were there other emotions at the time you found out of the infidelity? It, it was tough because um, when I realized that we were starting to have problems, um, I didn't feel like I had any issues with the relationship. Uh, like I wasn't unhappy. I wasn't like wanting to date other people or wanting to split it off or whatever. So she basically had told me um, that, she had she was 10 years younger than me she had like never lived on her own and done all these things that most you know 30 year old women had done as americans uh, living paying bills have a job all that stuff so she basically just told me i want to live on my own and like do my own thing i'd never done it before and i was like supportive and i helped her look for an apartment and i was trying to move her out and you know show her something that maybe she thought she had missed out on by being sort of sheltered when she was younger and then getting married when she was young. Um, you know, I wasn't like on her all the time for whatever she wanted to do. You know, she'd go on road trips, with their girlfriends and stuff. And I wasn't like hitting her up. Like, what are you doing right now? Who are you with? I, I don't care about that kind of stuff. So I was just trying to like be accommodating. Um, she left on Chris. She moved out on Christmas, like a couple of, what was it? Like 2000, 11 2012 she moved out christmas day and i remember it was, we were living in downtown la we had a condo there and we i knew she was moving out on christmas it was really weird day we like walked to go have breakfast kind of like holding hands like is this a lot i asked her is this the last time we're ever gonna like you know be near each other or be close to each other and she's like no 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 it's all good so we come back home i make dinner she's like packing her stuff up after she opened all of her Christmas presents, she's like putting all of these things back into the boxes that I had bought, <laughs> bought it all in. And then um, I make dinner. She moved out Christmas, like took all her stuff and left. And I had really had no idea. Like I had hired a relationship therapist that time. We were like trying to, I was trying to work through it with her, but she had already checked out and she was kind of dishonest with about with me about the whole thing. And like the reality was she had been dating somebody else and like was cheating before that. Um, and I just didn't find out about it until that was Christmas time. I didn't find out about to like March or something of that year. And that was when I like went to the court and like filed the divorce paperwork. But, but at the time you found out, what were the emotions that you were feeling at the time you found out? Honestly, I felt relieved. You know, it, everything sort of made sense. It wasn't just like, you know, her telling me one thing about how she felt. It was like, oh, you have a boyfriend. That's concrete. If that's if that's the deal, like I'm easy to escape that. But if I think there's like still a hope for us to try to work on our on our marriage and relationship, then like I'm going to work on it. And as like a man, I think that's kind of like a reactionary thing. Like you don't want to fail something. There's some kind of problem. You seek resolution. 
you try to figure it out. But when I learned like what actually had happened, I was like, oh, that's kind of a relief because like I don't have to do all this work now. We can just get the divorce and, you know, move on with our lives. So it kind of it, it, it gave you clarity because now it helped you make sense of all your emotions and you were kind of uh, relieved and uh, on some level grateful for like, now I understand what's happening here. It was oddly relieving. Wow. You know, that sounds weird, right? And I remember uh, it was tough in, in California because the courts were all backed up back then. And finally, like when my divorce had been finalized, it was probably like about a year after she had moved out or 16 months, something like that, after she had moved out. And it, finally, I got the papers in the mail. They're like, she's no longer your, you know, the last name is gone. She changed her name and everything. I texted her and I said to her, just so you know, like I got the documents from the court and I said, it brought me greater tears of joy than I cried when we got married. And she says, oh, don't be sad. <laughs> I was like, no, I'm so happy. Like, I'm just so happy that this is like, I don't feel like it was my fault necessarily. I mean, we're both at fault, obviously, but like, you know, when somebody's cheating, it's like, it takes two people to, to tango, I guess. And like, just like finally resolving the whole thing at that point was like one of the happiest days of my life, like happier probably than the day that I got married, just because I had felt so saddened and depressed by this for so many months. Like finally it like gave me a reason to look towards like a positive direction and like move on. So when did the uh, suicide attempt come into play? It was before I found out that um, she had been cheating. So it was on, it was like two days after she had moved out. And I remember uh, I had gone down to like a bar down the street. They were like, hey, Merry Christmas. And I was like, I'll take 10 shots of whatever and just bring them right now. And I drank all this booze. And then I went back upstairs and I was like, at that point, it was, it was before New Year's. So it was like the same week, basically, that she had moved out where I just didn't know what was going on. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm a failure. I have to, I just need to like, end this, this is nonsense. Like I did something wrong. I'm, I'm at fault, you know? And that was like the moment. It was probably like three days after Christmas, two, two or three days after Christmas. So let's backtrack a little bit and take me into your childhood, Mac. You know, were your parents married? Yeah. So I was, um, I was adopted. My sister and I were both adopted from different moms. Um, my parents couldn't have kids. They were like a, a swinger couple product um, who were married in the 70s and they moved from. Philadelphia, Cleveland to Philadelphia to DC. I was born in Virginia. I got adopted into DC when I was like a year old. Um, and like I said, I had a sister who was a couple years older. I had a pretty, I was lucky, you know, like my parents were very um, solid and kind of rescued me from what would have been a, a, a harder life and gave me a lot more opportunity. So my, my parents were always really supportive and uh, caring and solid. And um, yeah, I mean, I live with them. They're, they're still together. They've been married for 54 years. Um, 
I, I moved out when I was about 16 or 17 to go to college and then kind of was freewheeling it since then. And at what age did you find out you were adopted? I don't remember not knowing. Like when I was a kid, I had these two books that always got me into trouble. And one of them was called, where did I come from? And one of them was called, why was I adopted? And the, where did I come from book got me into way more trouble. Cause it was like, you know, an animated thing that talked about, you know, mommy and daddy loving each other and daddy parking his truck in mommy's garage and how it felt like a sneeze. And then nine months later, the stork came. So I would like share that book with my friends at school and they would tell their parents about how mommy and daddy had a truck. And it did not go over that well when I was five or six years old. (laughs) But uh, I always knew. Uh, I always knew. And like my sister always knew she was adopted, but we both reacted completely differently to it. And I felt like lucky that I had a better life or a better opportunity for life. And my sister, on the other hand, felt slighted and unwanted. Um, so it was interesting to see like how the two of us, you know, lived based on how that living situation worked. The same situation, different, uh, framing of the experiences of it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, I have a relationship with my biological mom now, <laughs> excuse me. Um, she didn't ever connect with her biological roots. And I think it's just kind of like, you know, I actually, I think that's more of like the, the manifestation of like what you want or what you want to know or what you need to know in your life. And like, I manifested things differently than my sister did. And I looked at things more positively. And then like all these answers came to me, whereas like she just felt slighted and unwanted and nothing ever materialized in terms of like her questions being answered for her, whoever she was or came from. Yeah. I I can't even imagine what that would be like um, knowing you're adopted. And I, I don't know which direction I would go if I would be grateful for, finding a household that uh, took me in and was caring and supportive, or if uh, I would feel, um, you know, slighted and unwanted as, or or maybe both, you know, it it might be a mix of those emotions in there. Um, For you, you know, you talked about walking into a bar, ordering 10 shots, um, and then coming home. When did the drinking for you start? Uh, I mean, back then I drank a lot more than I do now, but, uh, on that particular day, I can't, I don't really remember. I just was like coping with alcohol. And I know this conversation is not about alcohol. It's about, um, you know, other things that you've used to cope with loss. And like, I, I'm just telling you what happened that day. Like I, 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 uh, I don't really remember if I had been drinking much before I went to the bar, but there was like bar downstairs in the building I lived in. And I just was feeling very depressed. And I went down there to, I thought I was going to have a beer. And then I was like, I'll take all the bourbon, you know? And then, uh, I was there for about 15 minutes and pounded all this alcohol. And I went upstairs and was like, just feeling like helpless basically. Right. Because like going back to when we feel like we've done everything right and we've committed and we sacrificed, did 
I, I want to go back to this word commitment. Is this, you know, what did your parents or your mom or your father talk to you about relationships or about what being a man was? Like, what kind of messages about your role in society growing up uh, did they share with you? That's an interesting one because um, my mom grew up as like a, a, f- a first generation chicken farmer from Germany. My dad was like a Roman Catholic, like a dude from Philly and uh, who had been through some tough times in Vietnam and all this stuff. And so like my dad and I have never talked about love, relationships, commitment or any of these things. Uh, my mom is always one who's like, I don't think I like your girlfriend. <laughs> you know, And like, uh, I don't think either of them really, it was hard because I don't think either of them really raised me in a way that like gave me a lot of information about how healthy relationships worked. All I saw was how the two of them, you know, connected with each other, how they communicated and like, you know, basically that was it. We didn't have that much in common. They were actually like significantly older than I guess most traditional parents. Maybe there was a big age gap, you know, cause they couldn't have kids until they decided to get us like in their forties. And I don't know. I, I just didn't know much about relationships other than that. Like I was kind of rotting solo and always like wanted to put a lot of effort into my relationships when I was even a kid or younger or in high school or college or whatever, just cause I like, didn't know much about it and didn't like have a lot of info on what to do or what not to do or what made sense or what didn't make sense or how to treat other people. I kind of like, um, didn't have a lot of guidance in that on, on my, in my growing up years. How did you witness them handling conflict? Were, were there arguments? Was there yelling matches? Did they sit down and have a nice amicable way of dealing with things? We had dinner every night together. That was like something that was like, it was going to happen every night, no matter what anybody had to do. And so that was always like our area to like communicate with each other was during dinner. And my mom was a terrible cook. So like we would always want to eat dinner really quickly and then go on and do our thing. Um, But that was always like the, the sounding board for like where the problems were in the family, what needed to be communicated better. And sometimes there's a lot of stuff I didn't want to hear about. Like, uh, you know, Hey Bill, it's been six months. So you know what tonight means? And I'm like, I'm good. I'm, I'm going to go downstairs now. I don't hear about. <laughs> you don't hear about they're, those they're shenanigans. Like a, they were on like a calendar schedule when they got older. And that was always weird. I didn't, I did not enjoy that, but, um, you know, I drank my glass of milk and ate all my vegetables. And, uh, that was pretty much like, that's pretty much it. Like in terms of like them, training me on like how to have a healthy relationship with another human it just never happened you know i just kind of i don't think most parents who do try to train train their children on how that should work really would you ever even get that much of a response from their children because it's like a generational thing it's just so different now like 40 years apart it's just a big difference wow yeah that is a big difference i mean yeah you know, if they had been younger, you may have seen maybe a bit more affection. But the fact that your dad, you know, is a is a Philly guy, Roman Catholic, and went to Vietnam, like there's not a lot of room for emotions there. Yeah, and, and my <laughs> and my and my biological mom, who I'm friends with now, she had me when she was 13 years old, 
And uh, we're like really cool and like tight. I met her for the first time last year in Missouri. And uh, we've been in touch since I was like around 18 years old and, you know, back before cell phones and stuff. And we traded like letters you actually put a stamp on and kind of grew to know each other through there. And that, that's an interesting story too. Um, but I shit, I'm 44. She's uh, 57. <laughs> you know, that's kind of unusual. <laughs> So, so yeah, talk to me about were there any emotions that came up for you when you met her, when you finally met her physically that you weren't yeah. expecting? Yeah. So she pulls up to my house and I was living in like a farm property back then with my ex-girlfriend and the dogs. And it was a nice big spot in Missouri. And so she comes up from Arkansas where she lives and she gets out of the car and we just, I went out there to meet her and we just both like, were just completely in tears. Like couldn't stop crying, very emotional, hugging, crying, hugging, crying. We go inside and like all of the waterworks just kind of stopped. And it was like chatty, 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 chatty. And I, I cooked her a bunch of food and stuff, but we just like talked all day, all night long. And she spent the night in the morning. I make her some like, you know, baller pancakes and uh, she's getting ready to leave and everything's like totally emotionally it's fine but then when we go outside and she's getting in her car to leave it's just non-stop crying like waterworks non-stop very emotional so it was very strange like the coming and going was very emotional but the time together was like just seemed normal wow and, and that had to i want was that a feeling of relief also of like Oh my God, like she feels the way that I feel to have your emotions validated, especially coming from a household where the emotions really weren't talked about, it seemed like. And then to have somebody mirror how you feel in the moment. Definitely. It was like the first relatable moment of my life with somebody who I was related to. You know, like it was like, it was. It was, it was like I'm completely obvious that we were that she was my mom, you know, like just by the way we were interacting, like it, it, it was a, it was sort of like an almost like an out of body experience to like look down and be like, oh, my gosh, this actually makes a lot of sense. Going back to the. You know, the divorce was there usually there's a lot of financial strain that comes with breaking up. You know, I know she was already moving out and had moved out. Did that take a toll on you also emotionally? Or was there, was it a, a kind of a clean financial break? I got, uh, I was probably the luckiest man ever through the divorce in terms of financial stuff. Um, when we were married, I took care of her. She, she didn't really work too much. She had like a, a worked for her auntie or something, but she didn't make a lot of money. She contributed a little bit to, to our stuff. You know, I owned a condo. I paid for everything. Uh, I didn't ask much for her from her. So when she left, it was definitely a strain because um, I still had a mortgage to pay and she wasn't contributing, but she didn't ask me for anything. Uh, my only expenses were I, I hired the, uh, the uh, mediator from that TV show, The Divorce Court. and. Uh, they took care of everything. I mean, like I had my ex sign that I didn't have to pay her anything. There was no alimony. It was all like documented and 
both parties were in agreement. So I got really lucky, honestly. Um, I paid maybe like 10 grand for legal stuff. And then I think I gave her like a TV or something. And that was it, man. So, uh, you know, I, I, at the beginning of this episode, I referred to you as Chef Mac and people are like, where is the chefing come into place in, in all of this? And, um, and when I think about chefs, I think about, you know, Anthony Bourdain, rest in peace. And I think yeah. about how stressful being a chef is, right? Because you went from head blade to then right. going back to school and, and deciding to become a chef and long hours, like 90 hour weeks, sometimes a lot of injuries, a lot of burns, a lot of cuts. Uh, yeah. You know, not the best job security. There's isolation. There could be bullying. It's a it's a, a a high intensity, low control environment. And I, I bring all that up to say there's a lot of room again, Mac, to once again feel inadequate, inept, to to feel lonely. How are you coping with those emotions now when they come up? Um. I don't feel like that now. I mean, uh, I, I, I think part of it, it's like a balancing thing because part of creating and being on your feet and working hard in the kitchen for like 70 or 90 hours a week is that you don't really have a lot of time to think too much about other stuff. So you're like focused on your list of things that have to get done so that you can sell beautiful food. And like the personal part of it has to take a back seat. And it's, that's been a challenging thing for me too, because since I became a chef, um, I try to date cause I'm single and it's like, well, when can you go on a date with me? Well, I can meet you at like six 30 in the morning for a cup of coffee before I go work for 17 hours. Or like I have a day off uh, every other week, you know? Um, I mean, that's like the most challenging part. Like if I could find somebody here, who just wanted to like have sex on Mondays for an hour and a half, I'd be good. But I mean, it's just like, that doesn't usually work uh, in terms of like a partner who's interested in doing so. So um, like the, all the other things you mentioned, I don't really feel that like, I don't feel the struggles of being, of being in a chef role, like in other parts of my life is, I think it's beautiful. I make like, a lot of fun decisions on my day-to-day life where it's sustainable and fulfilling for me. So like the relationship part would be great, but uh, you know, maybe that's like a ancillary or a bonus at this point, like, or if I decide to do something else, maybe I'll have more time to focus on somebody else. But um, you know, chefing is definitely more of a full-time thing than most people are willing to commit to their like professional life. So it just takes away the time you have for a relationship. Right. And, and I would imagine at some point that there might be bouts of, I would assume loneliness or disconnection if, you know, when we do get a break and I understand that, like you said, it's all consuming, you know, working in the kitchen and along bouts of hours and uh, the commitment to it. But I would imagine one would, might overcommit to it as a way of not dealing with the feelings of, of loneliness or not coming back to anyone. You know, I know you have your dog. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I wanted a date an hour before this podcast. And, oh, uh, 
was all right. I mean, uh, I don't know if I would see her. I mean, she's probably listening to this maybe, or she will be listening to this. I would definitely see her again. I mean, maybe not, but, uh, the interesting thing about being a chef in LA and then moving to Nashville to be a chef is that when you try to do the dating thing, there are a lot less people here that are in your parameters. So like, I can't even use dating apps or anything anymore because they're all in Nashville saying, sorry, bro, you've reached the end of the internet, you know, try to find somebody in the real world. Cause there's no more, there's no more criteria, you know, no more, no more when they hit my criteria. So, uh, I don't know. I guess I've kind of taken a taken a step back from from like seeking that out when I know that I don't have the time commitment to put into what to a relationship that I know may be worth it. Um, like I just don't have the resources to do it. And I know that, that those resources, if they're not there, even if I find the most perfect partner, it's not going to work because I don't have enough to put into it at this point. So, you know, going back to your dog, you know, being part of what got you off the chair away from the yeah. window, right? Um, what is it about? First of all, what's your dog's name? His name was Portis. Like Clinton was. Portis. He passed away? Yeah, he died about three weeks ago. Wow. Yeah, it was a, it was a crazy time. Uh, he, he was 16. He's a bulldog. 16 is pretty. That's a pretty good run. Um, he was just not able to stand up anymore. And so I had actually like gave him his last bath, put him in his bed and he just like stayed there for a few days and didn't get up to eat or go to the restroom or anything. And so I, I called the vet and I had said, you know, Monday's my day off. Can you send somebody at 11? This is like three weeks ago. Send somebody at 11 to come put him down and take his body to cremate. And, um, you know, we just, we just got to do it. He's like, his quality of life is not good. So we have to just do it. So I like brought him this $70 uh, ribeye the night before and I cooked him this like amazing meal and hand fed him steak in his bed, his favorite bed. Um, And then like next morning, 10 o'clock in the morning, uh, I'm like getting ready to say goodbye and I look over and he died. And it was like an hour or like 40 minutes before the vet was coming to put him down. It was wild. It was just like a wild coincidence. And uh, my other dog was like laying next to him, like crying. I was like, oh, my gosh. Uh, <clears throat> you know, this just happened. Like timing wise was wild. And uh, it's it was hard. And it's still it's still really hard. But um you know, I don't like second guess, like, is the timing right? You know, because he died on his own. So, um, yeah, it was it was like three weeks ago, um, three weeks ago today. Talk to me. What what was it about Portis that you were like, I got to live for this guy? What was it about your relationship with Portis? I spent every day, all day with him for 16 years. And uh you know, when I worked at Headblade, he came with me every day to work. He was in the warehouse every day. And, and like the FedEx guy would bring him treats. And like my warehouse guy would like teach him how to skateboard. And he was like uh, in Headblade videos and stuff. He was just part of, he was not just part of my like personal life. He was part of my professional life. Everybody that I knew, you know, through work loved him. And like, he was just always there. Like, uh, 
24 hours a day. We were like never separated. So it's almost like, think about your longest relationship, even with like friends and family people. Like you don't spend that much time together with somebody like that, even though they're, they're an animal, not a person, obviously, but like just so many man hours together, you know? And uh, just the feeling of always having that around you. And even now that I'm gone, I like, I mean, I know he's gone, but like I come home and I'm like, Oh, do I need to go pick him up and carry him outside? You know? I mean, I have, I have a big tattoo of him on my leg. Uh, you know, he was like my first dog and uh, <clears throat> just like super important to me. Where are you feeling there right now, Matt? I'm a, a little bit, yeah, you know? Where in your body are you feeling it right now? I mean, I'm crying a little bit, but, you know, uh, in my heart, you know, he's just like, he was my boy. But I've got this other dog that's like, you know, snoring and farting right behind me. So I know I got to take care of her, too. And uh, I bought, I got my other dog thinking like, Portis is not going to be around much longer. So I, I would like to have another dog as like a transitionary thing. And then he lived for like five more years. <laughs> so, he, I mean, he had a good run. It was just like, I don't know. I, I was, I would never be ready for for him to go. Was there a funeral? Or no. Sorry, did uh, you have like a, like a grieving process, a way of remembering Portis? Was there like, did you create a ritual or anything around it? I mean, uh, every time I take my pants off, I can see his portrait on my leg. <laughs> so that's like a good way for me to keep him close to me. Um, you know, I have like a lot of artwork and, you know, stuff like that that was done uh, throughout his life. Sculpts have like a little sculpture and like some painting and stuff. But uh, no, I, I didn't want to like hold on to his ashes. I thought that was kind of weird. I just like, the vet came, felt his stomach after he had died. It was like, he's full of tumors. You know, he's got cancer. Uh, they, we just picked him up on the bed he loved and cremated him on there. But, I mean, he ate all the steak like a good boy the night before. He was a good dog. And honestly, like, the whole reason I responded to your post about this was because, like, I believe for sure, like if he hadn't been around uh, like 10 years ago, we would we, maybe we wouldn't have this conversation even, you know? Besides Portis, besides being in the kitchen, what else, you know, Portis got you down off that chair and away from the window. Yeah. And outside of Portis, outside of being in the kitchen, what's, what's keeping you going on a daily basis? Are you in therapy? Are you journaling? Are you working out? Like, what, what's giving you strength at this moment? Yeah, I mean, uh, 
I'm fortunate to do what I love for a living, which I think a lot of people struggle with. Um, I published a book this year about uh, eating on on a diet that I have to eat on because of like food allergies and things like that. Uh, I thrive off of like helping other people and celebrating what I'm capable of doing through food, which is something that like most people need to live, right? Food and water. It's kind of essential, maybe shelter. Um, I don't know. I feel fortunate because I get to do things that make people happy. And it's not like, you know, I can invest money or do something or uh, sell a product or whatever. Food, I think generally is a core thing that makes people happy. And I tend to think I'm pretty good at making good food. So what keeps me going is to see like people's eyes when I see them bite into something that I cooked and they're like, Oh my God, this is so different. Or like, this is so flavorful or amazing or whatever it is. I can see it like through the kitchen window, like, Oh yeah, that they just bought my fried chicken. Cause I can see that they're so happy right now. And I get happy when I sell people food that makes them happy or they can use my food to connect to something that they remember that was a positive experience or, you know, maybe think differently about like, oh, I thought this is what all Thai food was like because I buy Americanized Thai food. But now that I'm trying something authentic, it's totally different and I like it better. So it's like an educational thing, but also like a necessity palate pleasing kind of gratification that i get from um chefing i mean it's like you don't do it for money you do it because you love it and you're passionate about it and i don't work like all these hours because they pay me well enough to like work all these hours i do it because i want i want to make sure my product is perfect and so like selling perfect products makes me gratified because i see the reaction that people have when they use it when they try it when they eat it Mac, what restaurant was that you worked at when uh, I I came in and was able? That was to... at uh, that was at Tallulah's, right? Pacific Palisades. Tallulah's. So I I I come to Tallulah's because I you know I watched all your posts on social media and, and the food you were posting. I was like, I gotta I gotta go see what this food's about. I gotta go see what my guy is doing. And I just yeah. happened to be over there doing some work. And man, you rolled out. The here's here's a here's a thing that I realized that is so different about all right. There are people who can cook, like my mom can cook. People can cook. Uh, there are people who can throw some things together, and then there are chefs. And what I loved about what you created was every bite was the perfect bite, right? And and every every bite had. Um, a beginning, middle, end. There's no other way I know how to place that, but there were notes. Because I was talking to my girl last night. I had, had made some rabbit yesterday. Yeah. And I was like, the rabbit was good, but it was missing a note. It was missing a, like, 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 it was almost like it had a beginning, middle, no end, or it had a beginning, end, no middle. It was, it was something missing. And, um, and chefs understand you have to eat this before you eat that because the flavors from this will enhance that or you know uh or it needs some bitter to accent the blah 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 and then also there's the color and then there's the texture there's just so much that goes into plating a dish and creating a dish besides 
salt and butter, right? Salt, fat, acid, heat. <laughs> I mean, that's a great book. I love that book. But Such there is, it's, it's composition. And that's what people, that's what like most home cooks need to study if they want to like next level their home cooking. Because it's about composition. It's not just like I need a puree, a salad, and a protein or a sauce and this and that. You need the composition. And that's why I love Asian food because it's always, no matter what country's food you're cooking, it's generally sweet, salty, spicy, sour. And so each country uses different ingredients to, you know, move the scale on either of those components. And so, like, it's beautiful because when you use those four elements, you don't have to really measure things. It's like, oh, it's too salty, add more sugar or palm sugar or whatever your sweetener is. If it's too sour, add more chilies, whatever it is. You know, like, there's always, like, this easy way to balance how it tastes. And I think, like, sometimes you're like, do I really want like uh, some palm sugar in my fried rice? It's like, well, yeah, because you have to have it there because it's going to be too bitter or too sour or whatever without that little bit of sugar in there. And everything is like a balancing act. So like the composition of what you eat is like the easy thing. I, I didn't know about it before I like learned how to cook well. I mean, I always cooked like good food that people wanted to come over and do dinner parties and stuff like that. But, um, you know. I was making like uh, food that didn't look great, that didn't have all those profiles that were hit. When you can balance it, that's the beauty of food is when you balance all the different things that go in there. Like you said, like even texturally, you know, you'll want to have something crunchy on like, every plate. You don't want to just have everything be all mushy and taste great. You need to have that balance of texture, the balance of flavor. And when you can figure that out, then like, you can just do whatever you want with ingredients. You can put whatever ingredients you want together as long as you have all that balance figured out. You know what I mean? All right. So I'm going to be a little selfish because we're wrapping up. But I all just right. had some sashimi, uh, fatty, uh, blue bluefin tuna. Okay. And I just threw some uh, New Zealand sea salt on there on top of that. What what else could I put on there? Because now I'm thinking oh, maybe I should have some little crunchy to sprinkle on top. Or yeah, I mean I would have done like uh, maybe some kind of like ponzu or like a chili sauce, and then fried garlic, fried shallots, maybe like potato chippy little like heirloom potato chips. You can kind of spread out on there something like uh, that has a different texture than just like squishy sashimi. I mean I love like poke and sashimi, but Usually when you get like a poke bowl, right? They would have like the fish. They would have some kind of like sweet sauce. They would have, have some kind of spicy element, something chewy like a seaweed or something that's like a little bit of a uh, chewiness because the fish should kind of just be buttery. Um, but they have like something, something sweet, something spicy, something crunchy, something soft like the fish. All that will go together, you know? I, I would do like... Uh, a great ponzu for raw fish is just straight up sweet soy sauce and vinegar. And then uh, maybe a little bit of pepper, something like that. And then hit it with something crunchy, fry something up, anything, you know, really garlic or shallot or onions or whatever. So besides your cookbook, eat with purpose, get that cookbook. Uh, and I, and I ordered mine. I got it as a, a downloadable. Did you uh, make any of those recipes? You know what? I have not. I am not because here's what I realized. I'm going to need to get the physical book. I yeah. don't do well. This is why I don't have a Kindle. 
I don't right. do well with uh, PDFs and downloadables. I need physical books where I can write and scribble and, and make a mess. And highlight uh, stuff. Because I'll forget about it, which is exactly until I had you back on here, I completely forgot I download. I was like, oh, yeah, I have his book. Right. Um, but uh, w- w- is there a fiction book? Not, not nonfiction, not self-help, but is there a fiction book that uh, really has resonated with you? Uh, mostly I read like relationship, relationship psychology books and like self-help stuff. So, like, Oh, tell me a relationship book. What I'm reading right now is called uh, The Power of Attachment, written by a PhD named uh, Dr. Heller. And it's kind of all about like how to create lasting, intimate relationships. Um, I mean, that's kind of goes along with this topic, right? It's very interesting. I mean, uh, kind of talks about like from the therapist's point of view, which I don't generally, I, I mean, I'm cool. I, I have like, I don't know. I have two therapists right now, but uh, last time I was in a relationship, I guess I had three therapists, but I, I do like reading about it from the therapy point of view, relationship psychology, because it's not that much different. Uh, you know, well, what was the takeaway from that book? Power of Attachment by Heller. What, what, like, what, what st- stands out to you so far? I think it's like kind of giving, cutting yourself a little bit of slack for um, things that maybe don't work in your favor just because of the possibly trying to focus that energy on the wrong person or somebody that's like not copacetic for what you want or doesn't have the same long-term goals or long-term needs or wants. Um, So like the attachment thing, it's easy. Like, I think, I think like the power of attachment is something that like a lot of people struggle with because from the beginning, usually when you meet somebody, it's like that attachment just seems like really solid. And then you don't know much about each other, but it's more of like how to make the better decisions to attract the right person where like that attachment could be long serving. Oh, so reading that, is there something when you look back, you go, Oh, I see where where I should have I could have done this or here's something I want to do moving forward. Is as Def, it just, def definitely and, like and like it helped it helped me identify some red flags. Like, you know, I do a lot of internet dating. I used to write a blog in LA called neverhadabaddate.com and I went on a hundred or something like that, 15 minute dates, and I wrote about all of them. <laughs> and like uh it was cool, man. I mean, it was like it was very confusing to women in LA because they either had like boyfriends or husbands and they didn't really they just want to get a dinner out of a date or something like that. Or they'd be like, what do you mean you don't want to hook up? And I'm like, well, I don't. I don't. I just wanted to meet you and see if I wanted to go on a second date. And I'm going to write about it on my blog. So you can read it if you want. But, you know, it is what it is. Uh, but I think, like, it taught me a little bit more about how to how to spend your resources and not to uh, be so forward thinking, like, and attaching to somebody who you don't know that well. I mean, we're more like identifying red flags. And so like a lot of the red flags I identify now are like, you know, if it's too emotional from the get go, probably, you know, take a step back. If it's, uh, if there's no connection from the beginning, probably, you know, take a step back. Um, I don't know, more so like, there's no formula, right? Like we've all had relationships where we jumped in really quick 
and it was like super emotional and awesome and seemingly perfect from the beginning and then it didn't work out and then we also had relationships in our lives probably where we took things slow you know we waited until we felt what we said and then it still didn't work out so if there's a formula that is like foolproof i would read that book too <laughs> you know you, there isn't you, you, you know you bring up a great point and which is there's no formula and, and and i think this all ties in perfectly to the very beginning of what we were talking about in terms of you know you're standing on a chair you're looking out the window and it's because you're feeling like you failed like there's something you could have done differently like there was a right formula like there right. was a like there was a recipe for how to have the perfect uh, marriage and stay committed uh, to each other for, you know, you, like you said, your adopted parents been together for 55 years. Um, and as you're sharing, there isn't. And, and this is so important for the listeners out there. Like, yeah, there's things that you could have done differently, but you would have had a different outcome. And that doesn't mean that it would have been a better outcome. We, we tend to think that if we did something different, then things would end up better. But sometimes right. if we did something different, they could end up worse. So um, we, we, it, we don't know. And, and that's the beauty of life. It's the adventure of life. It's, the, uh, it, it's, it's why it's so good to allow ourselves to get lost and to explore and to see, explore in relationships, you know, walk into stores and explore. Just have a, a kind of a wandering experience. And um and like you said, when you got married, you're like, hey, let's see what happens. Let's see right. what this feels like. And, you know, you've demonstrated your commitment to Portis. You've demonstrated your commitment to your wife and to your craft. So, you know, I applaud you. And the fact that after so many years of not, you know, seeing your mom and you could be walking around with this anger and this resentment, which might be there on some level still, right? Who knows what will come up for you five years, 10 years from now um, as the emotions start to shift and other things maybe come up. But it takes a lot of courage to be vulnerable and to share and sit down with your mom and to say, I still want this relationship. I still want to yeah. try and I'm going to commit to this. And, uh, and let's see what happens. So yeah. I, I applaud you, Mac. Thank you, sir. And I'm still thinking like, you know, I may still remarry and have kids. Who the hell knows? You know, uh, <laughs> who knows? I mean, life is uh, infinite. And uh, I think that's something to think about, too, because we all think and I a lot of people hit me up when they are going through difficult relationship things because they want my advice. And I, I always think like, well, why do you want my advice? I have never had one of these things that worked out, you know? Um, but I think like it's a very common dilemma and that's probably why you want to talk about it. You know, like everybody goes through the same things. And I think more so it's like how you digest, learn and incorporate in your future life, what you go through. That's hard. You know, that like the life lessons and all that stuff. And Man, at least I, I'm I'm old now, but at least I know more. I feel like, but then you know, you pop into the next thing, and you're like, "Oh my God, I don't know anything." And then uh, you learn from the next one, and hopefully carry that on through your, the rest of your life. 
digest, learn, and incorporate. I love it, Mac. Mac, what are you looking forward to? I am uh, looking forward to smashing the next week before Christmas, and then I am going to go head on vacation to Jamaica with uh, a beautiful redhead. So I'm looking forward to that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I love it. I love it. And then last question, because I ask this of all my guests, because I always imagine there's one person out there who might be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you yeah, kill yourself, man. what would you say to them, Mac? The moment is the most difficult time. And I think like, and he, we talk about Anthony Bourdain and, you know, all the other Robin Williams and all these beautiful people that so many people loved. And it's always that moment, you know, no matter how much pain you're going through, it's that one moment. And like, we go through so many of these terrible moments and difficult moments in our lives. But if you can figure out a way to just like push through that moment and find a purpose, like you're just going to be thanking yourself so much that you decided to, you know, get off that windowsill. That's right. Push. Now I don't want to say push through the pain, sit with the pain. And at, at some point the, the purpose will reveal itself. Uh, sometimes in the form of a dog, you know, when I posted on Facebook, what pe- has gotten people through divorces, they mentioned, uh, therapy, family, yeah. friends, yoga, music, dancing, long cry drives, time, yeah. uh, enrolling in college, new environments, setting new goals, guitar, piano, surfing, Beyonce's yeah. lemonade, <laughs> dating adventures, video games, and karaoke. Is there anything you want to add to that list, Mac? I would take music off that list because when you're going through some stuff like that, music is probably the worst thing you could ever <laughs> pop into. I mean, it's like, I remember when I got, was going through my divorce, the most popular song on the radio was that was that song, Somebody That I Used to Know from Gyote or whatever the band's name was, Gyote. Now you're just somebody that I used to know. And I would hear that song like, 10 times a day on K-Rock in LA. And I just wanted to like drive off the side of the PCH. Wow. Um, I, I would say like, not just going through the divorce, but like anytime you're dealing with um, real loss trauma like that, it's like all those people you kind of dog when you're in the relationship, all your friends who, who are like real friends, like you, you got to just lean on people that care about you because they didn't go away, even though maybe your relationships changed since you were with somebody else. You know what I mean? Like when you're when you're really suffering, people pop out of the woodwork who actually mattered. And I think like it's important to lean on those people. Absolutely. And you're right. You know, music uh, is so powerful because um, uh, it could either make you want to drive off the cliff or it could make you want to keep driving, you know. Um, and so what I love about Spotify and Pandora, they have these curated playlists because I know when I went through a breakup and it's not a divorce, I, I, you know, I put together my own playlist to make sure that the songs would impact me, uh, the way that I want to. And so, you know, right. Yeah. Yeah. So right up there is NSYNC's bye, 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 you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I, and I think also like, don't forget to laugh, you know, and like 
I know you're you are you you make people laugh. That's like a, a daily, but don't forget to make yourself laugh and 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 to find some kind of like humor even in difficult times because I think that kind of balances out your emotions a little bit and makes you realize that you're not like a failure or your life is just normal and this kind of thing just happens, you know. Absolutely. Mac, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much to listeners for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help for you calling the 1-800-SUICIDE or 1-800-273-TALKS. Remember, there are international phone numbers in each and every one of these show notes, no matter where you are in the world. If you're in Taiwan, if you're in Kenya, if you're in uh, Budapest, no matter where you are, Canada, Toronto, uh, Texas, chime in. If you're in Virginia, my boy Mac is, uh, you know, born in Virginia, raised in D.C. There are phone numbers for you to uh, listen, get help. You can talk, you can chat, you can text. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Chef Mac. Thank you, brother. Love you.